Welcome to Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams. Red Pill Revolution started out with me realizing everything that I knew, everything that I believed, everything I interpret about my life is through the lens of the information I was spoon-fed as a child. Religion, politics, history, conspiracies, Hollywood, medicine, money, food, all of it. Everything we know was tactfully written to influence your decisions and your view on reality by those in power. Now, I'm on a mission. A mission to retrain and re-educate myself to find the true reality of what is behind that curtain. And I'm taking your ass with me. Welcome to the revolution. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams and thank you so much for watching this. I'm so excited to share these things that I've been learning about over the last couple years um, as I've been researching, studying, and kind of, uh, I know it's kind of an overused term, but awakening to what's actually happening around me. Um, I know you heard a little bit from the intro and uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit about what this podcast is going to be talking about. Um, but I think today should give you an even better idea. And specifically, I think this one statement could start to open your eyes to what uh, my eyes have been open to and hopefully start to peel back some of the layers of the statement as the podcast goes on and we have more episodes. So um, again, thank you so much for joining me. So, so excited to start this journey with you. And uh, without further ado, let's move into it. But before we do that, I need you to do this one little thing for me. I need you to like and subscribe to this channel. I need you to share this to whoever you know. And I need you to go to ichoose.red.com is for losers. Ichoose.red and sign up for my newsletter. I'm gonna be keeping you guys updated. I'm gonna be pushing out all of the articles that I reference there. I'm going to be putting out a weekly newsletter about the topics that we discuss and it will keep you updated moving forward. I appreciate you guys so much. Like, subscribe, share. Let's start this revolution together. So the one statement that I was talking about is is this, and I really think this helps to capture a lot of the elements of what the topics are going to be that we talk about on this podcast. And I also think it's going to start to give you some idea of, of where we're going to go in the future and some of the details that we're going to dive into. So um, that statement's this, uh, the agenda, the agenda of the world's elite are legitimized by science, passed as law by politicians, pushed for acceptance by Hollywood, indoctrinated to the next generation through schools, education, and religion, and enforced on people through corporations. I'll say it again because I think that's quite the statement, and I think you should really start to piece that out. The agenda of the world's elites are legitimized by science passed as law by politicians, pushed for acceptance by Hollywood, indoctrinated to the next generations through academia and religion and enforced on people by corporations. Okay. And so I think that gives you a really good, clear idea of where we're going to go with this. And again, like I talked about, we're going to start to peel back those layers as the episodes go on. And, um, but today we're going to tackle the very first statement of that um, opening, which is uh, the agenda of the world's elite is legitimized by science. And I think this has become, it's such, it's so funny to me that this has become a controversial topic because when I was in school, I was taught the scientific method, right? We were taught that science is asking questions. We were taught that science is a methodology, not an ideology, not something to be believed, but something to be questioned. And that's what gave it 
uh, that's what gave it its legitimacy, right? And now we're to a point after all of this that they just don't want you to even ask a single question about science. And I think that really starts to open our eyes to what what I'm starting to believe about science is science was hijacked and science has now become a religion or a, a cult in a sense where you don't get to ask questions. And if you ask questions, you're ostracized, right? You're no longer in the club. You're no longer a part of that group. And And I think we can kind of start to look at that uh, how that happened um, by looking back in history. And we're going to talk about some of those things and some of the key players and some of the organizations and some of the people who fought back. And I think this, a, a statement that's as simple as this might, might allow me to give you a picture of what I'm talking about. If, if, if I asked you a question, how far is the sun from the earth? Uh, most people are going to do the same exact thing, which is they're going to, you know what I'm talking about. They're going to pick up their phone. They're going to go to the Google machine and they're immediately going to look for an immediate answer from a computer. And uh, what they're going to do by doing that is they're going to get it spit out, you know, 8 million. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I probably should have looked at that. However far it is that the sun is from the earth, uh, you're not going to question it just like I wouldn't. I would go to Google, I'd type in how far is the sun from the earth, and then I would accept that answer and act as if I found that out myself, which I didn't. I didn't do any of the work. I didn't do any of the equations. I don't even know what the equations were to even get to that point. And even if I did, I wouldn't be able to utilize them properly to get the same answer because I'm not educated enough on the topic. So... So there's a lot of problems with that. And I think the biggest problem is that we've just come to a point with science that we just accept it as fact without questioning it. When again, if we go back to what I said originally, science is a methodology, not an ideology. Science, the whole idea behind science and the whole idea behind uh, the scientific method is questions. Science is questions, if nothing else. It is not answers, Right? And even if science has answers, they should be questioned to legitimize them as science. You don't trust science. You don't, you know, the same way that, you know, somebody who's, uh, and that's where the religion aspect comes into it. It's like, if you go into a church or you go into a mosque or you go into it with just questions, without just sitting and listening and kind of accepting these things, you're going to start to get some pushback, I think. And if we start to pull apart these questions, right, for, for this example, it's how far is the sun, right? Well, we don't know the equation. We're probably not educated enough to get there. And in the same way that we look to a pastor for an answer or a priest or a pope or a prophet or something like that, we're looking to no longer prophets, no longer pastors, but we're looking to Google. That's scary, Google, Google is now the provider of truth, right? Science is now the end-all, be-all answer to all questions. And if you question that answer, you are now a conspiracy theorist, right? Instead of a scientist is what that used to make you. You know, science in today's world is synonymous with unquestionable answers, right? Just, just like religion requires faith in the unseen to exist, so does science, right? For at least for the general population, right? Unless you're a molecular biologist, atoms, you just accept that they're there, right? I don't know how they found that out. I just accept that as truth. I accept that as fact. You know, unless you're a gifted mathematician, most of today's physics and answers to to the largest, most craziest questions requires faith, faith in scientists, faith in the process of science that got them that answer, faith in you know, the, the people who were providing the funding for that science not being corrupt in their reasoning, right? And that kind of segues us back to the, the entire fucking point of science is to question. Yet your neighbor's dumbass sign says, trust the science. Science, like I said before, is a methodology, not an ideology. Trust the science. No, bitch. Question the science. And if the science holds true, then it's real factual science and not some corrupt study that was put into place to manipulate your ide- your ideas and what you think about certain subjects to then manipulate your actions, right? And that's what we're seeing today. And that's what a lot of people are awakening to. Let's use a specific example, right? 
Uh, just something super non-controversial, something that's really easy to start us off so I don't stumble over myself on the very first episode of this podcast. And for that, we'll use uh, COVID, COVID and vaccinations, super non, uh, nobody's going to get bothered by that, right? So, so COVID at the beginning of it, and now I'm not somebody who denies COVID exists. Now, I'm not somebody who thinks that it's not real. Obviously, it's real. There's tests to prove it. But what I do think, you know, back in March, let's rewind, back in March of 2019, uh, nobody knew what this was, right? Nobody had any idea what the severity of this was going to be. We could have all died for all we knew, right? We thought it was the next plague. And I didn't even want my wife going to the grocery store without putting gloves on. It seems so silly now, but the reason it seems silly now is because we have more information, right? We have the statistics. And even though those statistics were manipulated and skewed and, and used by media companies to manipulate your beliefs and, and to try and cause this mass panic to drive more profits to these corporations like the news media, like more power to the politicians, like more money to the companies that are providing vaccinations and PPE and all of these things. But as soon as we started to find these statistics out, right, as soon as the information came out, and I was literally like <laughs> playing, uh, I don't know if you guys ever played the game Plague. Uh, it's an app on your phone where you you make viruses and watch them spread. And and I was like playing that every night. And, like you know, it was, like, it was a silly thing to do, but it was it was like we were entranced by this new crazy idea. And what... What that, uh, what that did for me, like, as soon as that information started to come out, we started to see that, you know, we started to see that the, uh, you know, the statistics problems that we started to see problems with, I think the very first one was they started to manipulate it so that you didn't know whether people died of COVID or with COVID two very separate conversations and two very separate things that, uh, for you to process in the, the severity of this um, of this virus. And then from that with COVID or died of COVID came the idea that once the more information and more statistics started to come out that they were forced to give, uh, we found out that there was 2.7 initially comorbidities with each COVID death. Right. So it's like, OK, trust the science. Well, if you can't trust the science and how you verify the science is by looking at statistics. Right. Because we're not going to run those studies. We don't have access to the data, but we can look at the statistics and and. The statistics were minimized, right? The statistics of with COVID or of COVID with deaths was minimized. It was shoved to the side. And if you brought it up, you were stifled on social media. The, the, the second problem we had was the, those core morbidities, which is even higher now. It, two, it was 2.6, I believe, when I looked initially when these numbers were released by the CDC in 2020. Uh, but now they're as high as like 4.6, right? Then we, don't even, we didn't even get into a little bit later. We started to find out that the average age of death of COVID was higher than the average age of death in general. Weird. And then we started to see a little bit more information came out about how we were testing. Because originally I saw all these figures and I saw all these numbers like, why are there so many deaths? Why are there so many cases? And they couldn't possibly inflate testings. You know, you either have it or you have antibodies or you don't or. But then we started to learn more about PCR testing, which they're now starting to backtrack on. And so PCR testing was came out by a scientist who ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize for for coming up with PCR testing. And at the time that it was released, let me find the name for you guys. Um, the time that it was released, uh, the PCR testing, I believe it was in the early 70s. And the person who came out with that was Kerry Mullis. He was an American biologist or biochemist and had his recognition of his invention for the polymerase chain reaction technique he started, he shared in the 1993 Nobel Prize in chemistry. And what he came out with that and said was that PCR testing is not to be used for finding viruses. And he said that it's too sensitive. He said, and basically what the PCR testing does is it runs a piece of uh, DNA or a piece of DNA and, and searches for certain molecules or, uh, and I'm an idiot, don't, you know, look this stuff up for yourself, but this is what I pulled from it. And they, they run it through a certain amount of cycles. And if you do enough cycles, this is what uh, Kerry Mullis said himself, if you do enough cycles, it starts to make you question 
a little bit about reality. He says that if you run enough cycles, you start to see the pieces of there's pieces of everything in everything. You know, the theory that you know, the stardust theory, or, you know, you can start to find a piece of anything that you're looking for. If you extrapolate the DNA to such a long sense, or you do enough cycles. And he said that that would usually be right around 18 cycles. Now, when we were running PCR testing at its height, we were running somewhere between, uh, let's see, PCR testing cycles, COVID. We were running cycles at almost between 28 and 42 cycles, which would allow them to cause these false positives. When they redid these studies, they found that it was anything above that 18 range leads to a potentially 90% false positive rate for PCR testing. Now, you want to get into a little bit more detail about Kerry Mullis. He was a very, very big Fauci hater, even through the early 90s, um, from the scandals of Fauci killing people with the drug uh, AZT, which was originally used as a chemo or a, a cancer drug, but it was killing so many patients and causing cancer to become so much worse than what it was originally that they pulled it from the shelves. And all the pharmaceutical companies that were providing this lost billions of dollars. So they came to Anthony Fauci and said, we need to repurpose this. Obviously, you know, I don't have the conversation thread here, but they came to Anthony Fauci and Anthony Fauci went and decided that he was going to utilize AZT as a drug for HIV and the AIDS epidemic, which ended up killing tens of thousands, tons of people as a result of him misusing that AZT to try and help the pharmaceutical companies who were going to lose so much money from, you know, so much potential profits, I guess not so much money, but their profits that they could have potentially made. So he came out and Kerry Mullis said that uh, he wanted to basically chase down Anthony Fauci and would be the first person to uh, punch him if he had the chance. Fast forward three months before the spark of COVID, Kerry Mullis, the Nobel Prize winning scientist, biochemist who came out with the testing that was utilized to confirm COVID, died in his house three months before the pandemic. I'm not making this shit up. Go Google it. Google it yourself and uh, get the answer. He died in his house. Um, I believe it, they called it pneumonia. But what are the odds of that? The biggest uh, outspoken person who would cause a problem for Anthony Fauci and the, uh, the manipulation of these positive results for COVID dies three months before the COVID-19 virus is released from the Wuhan lab. Coincidence? Probably fucking not. But, you know, I digress. Let's move on. So um, very interesting story about Kerry Mullis. Do some research on yourself. It's crazy the fact that he died that close to COVID and he was such an outspoken person regarding Anthony Fauci. He hated Fauci. You can find those interviews and I'll, I'll post it right here for you. Um, and actually, here, let's cut to it what right now. It, what, what is it about humanity that, that, that it wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people that pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, in this century, because science is being judged by people 
funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci. Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know. If Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina, ask Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my, because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me. But I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But it was, you didn't want to do Scientists that. are not supposed to believe anything. Scientists are supposed to have some evidence that leads them tentatively to some conclusion or to some action. They're supposed to be able to show that to other scientists, any interested person, in fact, who's willing to understand what it is that was used as evidence, should be able to say, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. Using rules of inference that we've used for, since Aristotle. Okay, and that's not, it's not complicated at all. You learn it in the sixth grade, most scientists forget it pretty quickly. But science is not a set of beliefs. I mean, there's only one belief in science that has to, you have to retreat to commitment at a certain point. You have to say, we do believe that if A implies B and B implies C, then A implies C. And we do believe that if P is a proposition which is true, then not P is a proposition that is false. That's all we have to believe in in science. The rest of it is tentative, awaiting further study. And almost every single thing that is considered to be a fact in the 20th century, in another 200,000 years, will look very silly. You know, if you just think, picture yourself being a real bright Egyptian mathematician and thinking that you really understand math, and then see what you'd look like from the point of view of somebody in the year 2000. Did you really understand math? Nope. Was any of it right? Nope. It was all wrong in just a little way here, a little bit there, a little, there were things wrong with it. I wouldn't be surprised if 200,000 years ago from now, Aristotelian logic turned out to not be, you know, it's already starting to look kind of funny because of, of quantum mechanics. Sometimes things are true and not true at the same time. Some things, sometimes effect precedes cause. Time isn't quite what we think it is either. Nothing is certain in science. There are no, there's no room for beliefs. Beliefs are for beliefs are for things where you want to have a belief that helps bolster your courage in something, in order to act. So that's what religion's for. You know, that, there you say, I'm going to believe in something that's going to help me to get through this mess out here that I've got to get through, and I'm going to do that because it's useful for me to believe that. And the harder I believe in it, the p more powerful I get in a way. Especially if I want to start be bossing a lot of people around and I can get them to believe the same thing. But that's a belief. The difference between that and science was established clearly, at least in England in the 17th century, by the Royal Society, the founding of the Royal, Royal Society is still around now. They probably don't, don't remember this, that same bunch of assholes, that people that won't accept my papers anymore. But they said there's a big difference between empirical science. Empirical science is something that can be done in front of other people. You can show it on a stage. I can do my experiment in front of anybody who is interested in seeing the results, and we should all agree on the results. We don't have to worry about why. You know, we really don't. We don't ever, if you, if you why long enough, you'll always come to a big because and you won't be able to always know. But you can know what you showed. You can say, if I take this ball and I roll it down an inclined plane, it rolls down at a certain rate. It has to do, I think, with some kind of force we're going to call gravity. But I don't have to really know why it does. I can just show you it does every time. We can make cannons that will drop balls on people's heads with the same principle. It works. I can show you that it works by making the cannon. I can show you by repeating the experiment. I don't have to know why, and I don't have to believe in balls because I can throw one at you. You know, I don't believe in them. They are there because I can pick them up. I have them in my hand. I don't believe in science. I don't believe in polio. Do you believe in polio? I mean, we are under the impression that there was a disease caused polio that it caught and it caused certain and it got into your brain. It was terrible for you and some people died from it. We have evidence for it, but we don't believe in it. It's not in some church somewhere. And if somebody came along 100 years from now, studied the whole thing and said, you know what, there wasn't ever a disease called polio. It was a mistake. It was something else. It wasn't a disease. It was just, you know, I mean, then you change your, your mind about it in science. You're always ready to have your 
favorite theory proven wrong. And if you're not, you shouldn't be doing science. In fact, most of the people that are doing science shouldn't be there. Children should not be encouraged to go into science, by the way. Children should be encouraged to avoid it unless they just can't stand not being scientists. It's not a wonderful area where everybody is happy and, and, and heroes. There are very few of us that get the chance to go over to Stockholm and pick up a prize. It's a hard job. There are a lot better jobs for people that have belief systems. I mean, if you want to believe in something, you can be a lawyer. You can believe in law. There's a lot of places in law where you can believe it's okay. You can be in church. You can be a church person. You can believe there. You can be lots of other professions. You could be in real estate where you believe things. You don't do too well in real estate if you use too strict a belief system, but science is a place for people that just are too ornery to believe in anything. They say, show me. Show me why you think this is one way, and I'll try to show you another way, and we'll both do this, and we'll enjoy doing that. We'll debate about what is the, the, the actual outcome of the experiment, and we'll do it over and over again until we all agree. Then we'll move on to the next step. Make some gunpowder, something like that. Make cars. You know, we don't make, we don't believe in cars. It's not a belief. They're there. You can get run over by one. You don't have to believe in them. We believe in things like God. You know, the Catholics have sort of forgotten that, and that's why they sort of took a hit by science the last century. It's a belief thing. It's faith. That's totally different from science. It's, just, it's silly to hear people saying, you don't believe that HIV causes AIDS? You don't believe that? I mean, it's just a word, but it's a very, very important distinction, I think, that, that, that you know, that's why, it, and it, it's become a very emotional kind of thing, because people actually, they get personally committed to what really is a body of evidence. All right, so now we're going to talk a little about, we're going to go into where, where kind of the, the beginning, right? Maybe not the beginning, because the beginning goes back farther than this. But as far as vaccines go, uh, a big piece in history, and this is another theme you're going to find, is right around the time of World War II, a bunch of crazy shit happens. All of these restructuring of, of our governmental societies, we basically take in all of the Nazi scientists and formed NASA and, you know, uh, the CIA. And out of it becomes these vaccine and pharmaceutical giants. And one of those giants ended up being the, so, so let's, let's go back a little bit more. So 1940s, during World War II, we had a massive, massive amount of soldiers who were dying as a result of, of uh, a ton of different viruses, whether it was gangrene, whether it was um, tons and tons of different silly reasons that they should not have been dying because they were shoving so many people into these small, disgusting boats in all these areas they shouldn't have been in without proper clothing or proper food or proper taking care of themselves or boots or any of this stuff. So they were dying in droves. And it was, it was almost as many people dying. It was like one in four people were dying as a result of um, some, kind of, some type of sickness. And uh, so what, they, what basically happened is they decided there was now going to be a war on viruses. And so what they did is they found out that penicillin was a very um, effective uh, multi-use vaccination. And so they basically put out a contract and said, who can help us build this industrious aspect um, to try and pump out as many penicillin vaccinations as possible to our soldiers so that we can win this war on viruses and this war on uh, Germany? So what they ended up happening as a result of that, uh, the company that won the biggest contracts for that and came to power because of it was, lo and behold, Pfizer. So Pfizer got the biggest, largest contract for penicillin throughout World War II. And um, basically, once the war was over and they had built all of these huge industrial buildings pumping out tons of penicillin, just kind of like what we talked about before, they needed to still make their profits. They, they built these, you know, warehouses to build it and do all these things for them. And they had nowhere to put the vaccines after the war was over. And so what they did is they lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. And it, right around uh, 1944, the law was passed to mandate all school children, K through 12, 
were now mandated also to take vaccinations because if it helped our soldiers on a boat going to, uh, you know, D-Day, then why wouldn't it help your, uh, you know, first grader who's going down the road to with a bunch of friends to uh, probably in a lot healthier state than these soldiers? But they need to make their profits, right? So they bought off the regulators at that time. They bought out the CDC, the AMA, the medical curriculum. And as a result, we're able to push for all vaccinations to now be mandated, mandated, which keep in mind, they didn't even have any repercussions for any type of side effects. They weren't even, they weren't even required to list side effects until the mid 60s. So they had a complete monopoly on who could give out these drugs because until it became a generic, they couldn't be repurposed by other pharmaceutical companies. So they have a complete monopoly. They're now legally mandated in schools. And now they get to continue making their profits. Right? What's even more interesting about that is that, you know, here's another question. The average, not a question, but a statement. The average 18-year-old through from zero to 18 years old now in today's world takes 72 now, if you count COVID and COVID shot two and the booster now that they're pushing, that's three more. That's 75 vaccinations that are mandated for your child or your body before the age of 18, right? We're not even going to get too far into the causes of that and the uprisings of autism as a result of these vaccinations and the timing um, during the mid 40s when these all started to get pushed out and how autism basically didn't exist until then. But something to research on your own. So another conversation that we can go into about that is the um, there, there was somebody during that time period, and I'm going to talk a little bit from this book right here. It's called Code Blue, and uh, it was written by Mike McGee, and it's a book that I'm reading right now. I find it's really, really fascinating. It goes into the, it's called uh, Code Blue Inside America's Medical Industrial Complex. Profit over uh, health, the fascinating, infuriating story of how we built the world's most expensive, least equitable healthcare system and what we can do to fix it. Um, great job. Shout out, Mike McGee. So if we go back here, and we're going to go all the way back to, if you have this book, page 43, which says, Major Pharma, er, sorry, during World War II, the Germans tested a compound called thalamide as an antidote to serine nerve gas. After the war, the patent rights wound up with Chemi Grutenthal, the company that had the first introduced penicillin into the German market. The compound was also licensed to US-based Smith, Klein, and French, which in 1956 and 57 began to explore the drug's effectiveness as a sedative. The company conducted a clinical study of 875 Americans, including some pregnant women. Sound familiar? Um... After analyzing the results and noting the birth of at least one deformed baby, they quietly buried the findings. Behavior that would not be discovered until more than a half century later when it was dug out by the plaintiff's attorneys. So, despite the concerns over that deform deformity, doctors were actually broadcasting the indications for use. One such physician was well-regarded Australian obstetrician, William McBride, who noted that thalidomide appeared effective in limiting morning sickness in first trimester pregnant women. Once his finding became public, the use of the drug exploded. So in standard, uh, standard medical industrial complex style, when Richardson Merrill presented its application for approval of the thalidomide to understaffed FDA in 1960, it was backed by an army. So 1960s, I'm sorry. It was backed by an army of lobbyists and plenty of friends in Congress. Everyone expected quick approval, especially considering that the drug was, drug was already widely used in Europe, Canada, and Australia. Fortunately, even if the FDA as a whole was mostly a paper tiger, the examiner it assigned to the case was an in fatigable lion. Now that infatigable lion goes by the name of Francis Kelsey. And here's a quick excerpt from uh, an article that was written in 1962 on the Washington Post on July 15th, which was titled heroin of FDA keeps bad drug off the market. 
and it opened with these four short paragraphs. This is the story of how the skepticism and stubbornness of a government physician prevented what could have been an appalling American tragedy, the birth of hundreds or indeed thousands of armless and legless children. The story of Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey, a Food and Drug Administration medical officer, is not just one of inspired prophecies, nor of dramatic research breakthroughs. She saw her duty in sternly simple terms. She carried it out, living the while with insinuations that she was a bureaucratic nitpicker, unreasonable, even, she said, stupid. She saw her duty in plainly simple terms. That such attributes could have been ascribed to her is, by her own acknowledgement, not surprising considering all of the circumstances. What she did was refuse to be hurried into approving an application for marketing a new drug. She regarded its safety as unapproved, despite considerable data arguing that it was ultra-safe. Now, what ended up happening as a result of that? Um, despite... Her vigilance, Kelsey's vigilance, Richardson Merrill had already exploited weaknesses in the 1938 legislation. So even during the time that she was not stamping approval. So here was the case. There was 26 people in the FDA that worked at the time to approve pharmaceutical medications. And of those 26 people, Kelsey was one of them. And she was the wrong one to mess with. And when they started, she started to connect the dots between these deformities and babies, the legless, armless children that were born all over the world as a result of this drug that they were now pushing as a morning sickness drug for pregnant women, um, even though it was not approved in the United States, they exploited weaknesses in the 1938 legislation, which focused on minimal standards of safety rather than effectiveness. And they distributed it, the name of research, some 2.5 million drugs to 1,267 American physicians under the guise of clinical testing. Subsequent lawsuits alleged that more than 20,000 Americans had received the product as a stress reliever, as an anti-nauseant in early pregnancy, or for headaches and insomnia. An estimated 3,760 women of childbearing age, 207 of whom were believed to be pregnant, were exposed. And of those 207, ultimately 17 U.S. children were born with birth defects. During this period, Kelsey continued to stonewall the Richardson Merrill request while she monitored medical journals from around the world. In the meantime, clinicians in Europe began to report clusters of birth defect pharmacophocomelia, an, an absence of limbs resulting from the lack of fetal growth of the long bones of the arms and legs of children. The first known baby born with such defects, the child of Gruenthal Worker, the child of the worker from the company which had this drug put out in the first place, had arrived Christmas Day of 1956. So what that shows us is all of those findings were hidden by the pharmaceutical companies. They didn't, they basically bullied Kelsey. They tried to ruin her entire reputation. They did everything in their power to try and get this drug pushed through because they wanted profits, profits over safety of humans, which seems counterintuitive from a company who is there to help people not be sick right? With pharmaceutical companies or medical companies or medical scientists. But again, that comes back to the war on allopathic medicine, which started in, um, by the Rockefeller Foundation. The Rockefeller Foundation, which originally wasn't a bad idea, came in and changed what was basically snake oil salesmen and doctors who had no reason to be doctors and made legitimate pathways to become a doctor. They established several schools, but they also delegitimized any school that was not allopathic medicine. Allopathic medicine being the war on disease as opposed to the assistance of medications to help your body fight things. So there's two belief systems in medical terminology. Well, three. There's allopathic medicine, there's osteopathic medicine, and then there's homeopathic medicine. Osteopathic or allopathic medicine is what we have in the U.S. today. Homeopathic medicine and osteopathic medicine are more common in Europe this very day, right now. And um, the reason that allopathic medicine is common in the United States, which we'll see, is all about profits over um, health, um, was started by the Rockefeller Foundation, who bought out and, and basically pushed out all of these homeopathic, osteopathic med um, medicine practitioners basically bought out all of the major schools, started the Rockefeller uh, School of Medicine, 
decided that it was more profitable to try and fight diseases as if it was a war on disease instead of uh, realizing that your body has many of these uh, things already or all the abilities to fight off many of the problems that you run into in your life and just might need some assistance with that help. You can't bottle your immune system. And if you could, bet your ass it'd be uh, you know, pretty expensive medication. Um, I'm sure they wish that. But so w- what they ended up doing was getting rid of all of the doctors who didn't align with allopathic medicine. This actually came out um, and started during the time of the American Medical Association. So the American Medical Association was basically the enforcer of this. Um, The American Medical Association was basically a foundation of, um, or a, a grouping of doctors who came in and lobbied and pooled their money together each year to lobby in the direction of profits for the physicians that were within the American Medical Association. Um, so the point of all that is that this has been going on for a very, very long time, which started during that war on illness in the 40s that came as a result of World War II, which was then pushed and utilized as a Trojan horse to be able to cause massive monopolies and profits for these pharmaceutical companies, such as Pfizer, such as Merck, which Merck's another one. Merck's a crazy story. So Merck, um, Merck is the one that's coming out with a pill that's supposed to help without being a vaccination and caused all the vaccination companies uh, um, stocks to plummet more recently. But what a funny thing about Merck, Merck was involved in so many scandals. And uh, there was emails that came out uh, about the um, doctors who were speaking up against a Vioxx. And Vioxx was a certain medication that was released. That was released. Let's see if we can find a dating here. Um, so Vioxx, uh, Merck made a, basically made a hit list of doctors who criti- criticized Vioxx. According to the testimony in a Vioxx class action lawsuit case in Australia, the list, email, the list emailed between Merck employees contained doctors' names with the labels neutralize, neutralized, or discredit next to them. According to the Australian uh, news network, Merck emails from 1999 show company execs complaining about doctors who disliked using Vioxx. One email said, we may need to seek them out and destroy them where they live. The plaintiff's lawyer gave the assessment. It gives you the dark side of the use of key opinion leaders and thought leaders. If they say things you don't like to hear, you have to neutralize them. It does not suggest a certain culture within the organization about how to deal with your opponents and those who disagree with you. This is on the heels. The allegations came on the heels of a revelations that Merck created a fake medical journal, the Australasian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine, in which to publish studies about their own drug Vioxx. They even made pop songs that they commissioned about Vioxx to inspire their staff and paid ghostwriters to draft articles about the drug in a positive light. So this is the lengths they're willing to go. They're trying to turn their own company's employees into cults uh, by coming out with songs about their pharmaceutical medications. And then they're threatening the lives of any doctors who come out to speak out against them. And this is happening. We're seeing this now. This was in 1999, but you're seeing this across the board now. And you're seeing it being enforced by corporations, which I talked about in that very first statement. You're seeing it enforced by Facebook. You're seeing it enforced by Twitter, by Instagram. You're seeing it enforced by news networks. You're everywhere that we have access to by Hollywood. How many celebrities? Let's talk about Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj is the only single big, large celebrity to come out and talk against this vaccination. And what happened to her? She got decimated by news networks. Go back and look and see her tweets about the journalist who basically threatened to dox her cousin as a result of not wanting to speak to the news network. This is still happening today. This is in 1999. That's not that long ago, but still happening today in just such a worse fashion. This was just the company. Now they have the political backing of social media giants, of news networks, of of academics in our school systems, right? And they have the backing of politicians passing laws that are mandating that our children get vaccines that have not been tested, that aren't even legitimate vaccines. They're gene therapy, right? But let's not dive too far into that. I digress. So the point is that science has turned into a religion. You can no longer question science, which is what science was always about. Science is about questions, not answers. And you definitely never, a proper scientist never accepts 
science as truth. They question everything and confirm the truth for themselves, utilizing certain formulas and uh, studies. Now, another big problem with today's scientific networks is how the, the difficulty to even be able to publish a study. Right. It's like if you want to actually verify, to be fair, most of our questions aren't as simple now as how far are we from the sun? Right. A lot of our questions require complex equations. They require a certain amount of people to do studies. You know, and like I said, the questions that we were asking the answers for no longer require simple math. It's, it's much more about complex than that. But, but these answers are now only acceptable if you utilize millions and millions of dollars of funding, mostly by corporations who are looking for the correct result. Hundreds, if not thousands of subjects. More yellow tape than, uh, than R. Kelly's bedroom. And to top it off, most scientific articles have a clause in them, have a clause at the bottom of, the sci- of, of when they sign on funding for your scientific study. They have a clause in them that says at the end of the study, when you come out with your results, we get to see them first. And once you, we see those results, we either get to approve this for publication or deny it. So if there's any unfavorable uh, information in there regarding that corporation, what they're funding this study for, they, you never sees the light of day. You're never going to see that study because it doesn't give and give the narrative of what they're looking for from funding that study. And from all the way back from 1940s, you know, in World War II, the uh, National Foundation for Science was established um, as a result. And in seeing how all of the uh, money that could be made as a result of these vaccinations and all the lobbying that was done by Pfizer and these early pharmaceutical companies. Um, But. At the time, most funding for scientific studies was funded through the government, which probably isn't a great alternative either at this point because the government's been hijacked. You'll see a big shift, and that that shift happens over almost the last 20 to 30 years where corporations now are by far exceeding the amount of money that's being put into funding for these scientific studies. Now, those corporations are only funding studies that will help their bottom line. They're not funding studies that are going to help further humanity's uh, effort to uh, be able to live longer or to be able to live or, or to get rid of some of these diseases that are, you know, you, everybody hears this, like cancer's a, cancer's a business, right? And we, so a lot of people will tell you, we have the cure for cancer. Now, I don't know if that's true and I don't know if I believe that, but what I do know is they're not looking for the cure. They're not looking for a way because they already have so many big giants put in place, so many pharmaceutical companies and profit from cancer at this point, that to eliminate cancer in general would be to eliminate all of those profits. So if there was a single pill that you could take for a dollar that would be able to cure cancer, there's no way these pharmaceutical companies are going to fund the studies to be able to get there. If the studies do come out and show promising evidence, they're not going to allow it to see the light of day. And, and if it does see the light of day, they're going to stifle that. They're going to utilize the politicians to pass laws like we've seen with ivermectin um, and hydroxychloroquine, which maybe isn't as effective as ivermectin, but we see it with ivermectin. With ivermectin is a extremely, extremely useful tool against COVID. But nobody, not the news, not politicians, not uh, social media, you say anything about ivermectin, you're going to get a flagged post on social media right now. And the reason is because it's a generic drug that doesn't cause profits. It's already there. Anybody can make ivermectin. But Merck's the only one that can make this new pill, right? And hey, if you're a doctor who says anything about it, what was it? We're going to find you in your house, said Merck in 1999. So, just give you a couple other really quick instances of uh, some of these studies. In uh, 1981, there was an influential Japanese study showing an association between uh, passive smoking and lung cancer. It was concluded that wives of heavy smokers had up to twice the risk of developing lung cancer as wives of non-smokers, and that the risk was dose-related. Tobacco companies then funded academic researchers to study to create a study that would then refute these findings. The tobacco companies were involved in every step of the funded work but kept the extent of their involvement hidden for decades. They framed the research questions, designed the study, collected and provided data, and wrote the final publication the tobacco companies did. Another example of this is that the sugar industry uh, attempted to shift the focus away from evidence showing that an association between sugar and heart disease. It was only recently revealed that in the 1960s, the sugar industry paid scientists at Harvard University 
widely considered the most prestigious academic institute in the world, to minimize the link between sugar and heart disease and to shift the blame from sugar to fat as being responsible for the heart disease epidemic. You remember the, uh, the food pyramid? You know, with carbs at the bottom, saying that every, you know, the, the, what you need most in your diet is carbs and what you need least in your diet is fats. Then above that, you know, all of that was lobbying. All of that was an excess of bread. All of that was all the sugar companies lobbying to try and get you, you know, literally fats and like candy was in the same category as fats and avocado and Skittles were put in the same category. Maybe not Skittles because sugar is Skittles. Hmm. I stand corrected. But you get the point. They're willing to do anything to stifle this information. And if you say anything against their truth, their, un, uh, their, their truth, their um, religion, their belief, trust the science, they say. Don't question us. If you question us, I'm going to flag your Instagram account. I'm going to get rid of your ability to make scientific decisions. I'm going to get rid of your medical license or your ability to practice law, or your Instagram story, if you're Nicki Minaj, if you say anything against these companies and their science that's now been hijacked and turned into a religion, you're done for. So where do we go from here? What do we do about this? And I think that's the hardest question of all. It has to start with people, you and me, and this podcast and your podcast, and we need to get it out there that we're no longer just going to accept these things as truth, right? Even though I'm not a biochemist or a virologist or a mathematician or a a English major for that matter, (laughs) um, I still have a brain, I still have deductive reasoning, and we still have the scientific method. And the only way to prove science as fact is by questioning it, right? And if we don't question it, and if we're not allowed to question it, then science is no longer science. Science is no longer a methodology. It is an ideology. Science is then a religion. And the God of that religion is man. And the man in charge of what that religion says and what the truth really is, is the one with the most money. The one with the most ability to corrupt these pharmaceutical organizations. The one with enough money to corrupt the history books so they don't tell their, these stories. The one with the most money to fund the social media giants who are now stifling any dissent against their truth. But we can't let that happen. Science is not a religion. Science is a methodology that begins with questions, not answers. And that's where we're going to leave off today. Thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been the very first episode of Red Pill Revolution, and there's going to be many more to come. Next week, we're going to get into uh, some new topics surrounding that same statement that I made at the beginning. And to close this out, I'm going to say that statement one more time. The agenda of the world's elites are legitimized by science, passed as law by politicians, pushed for acceptance by Hollywood, indoctrinated to the next generation through academia and religion, and enforced on people by corporations. Welcome to the revolution. See you guys next week.